This is part of a podcast series from the National Center for Youth Opportunity and Justice. This series focuses on topics that can help schools and communities successfully design and implement school responder models. This discussion, which centers around the impact of trauma, is moderated by NCYOJ's Dr. Crystal Brando and features special guests from Connecticut. Hi, everyone. This is Crystal Brando, Senior Project Associate at Policy Research Associates and with the National Center for Youth Opportunity and Justice, or NCYOJ. Today, we're here with a few experts talking about a very important topic related to school mental health, and that is the impact of trauma and how trauma can influence behaviors of youth in schools and how this plays into um, building a school responder model. So we're here with a number of experts that I'm delighted to introduce. We're here with Dr. Jeff Vanderplu, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Child Health and Development Institute of Connecticut and its parent organization, the Children's Fund of Connecticut. In this role, he oversees policy, system development, and practice support initiatives in CHDI's three focus areas of pediatric primary care, children's behavioral health, and early childhood initiatives. We're delighted to have Dr. Vanderplug on the line. Thank you for being here, Jeff. Thank you, Crystal. And we also have Joe O'Callaghan with us. And Joe is the Department Chair of Social Work at Stanford Public Schools. His work includes supervising 39 social workers, developing mental health programs, and working in the development of a trauma-informed school in Stanford, which we'll hear a little bit more about. Thanks for being here, Joe. Thanks for having me. And lastly, we're also joined by another employee over at CHDI, Dr. Gina Bracey. She is the Associate Vice President of School and Community Initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute of Connecticut. There, she oversees several school and community-based programs, development activities, and has experience in school-based mental health, juvenile justice diversion, health equity, and program implementation and evaluation. Here at NCYOJ and at PRA, we work very closely with CHDI, and we're really happy to have this opportunity to talk with some experts about the topic of trauma and how this relates to the school responder model. So with that said, I'm going to dive right into the questions here. Um, Jeff, how would you describe what trauma is? What is trauma? And I'll also ask you to explain from your point of view, what is the school responder model? Yeah, uh, thank you, Crystal. Uh, trauma is it's defined a lot of different ways. There's been a lot of discussion and, and interest in ACEs, for example, or adverse childhood experiences. Uh, but one of the definitions that we turn to at CHDI is, is from the Na- uh, National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and they put out a lot of great resources about trauma and effective interventions to address trauma. And what they say is that it's a frightening dangerous or violent event that poses a threat to a child's life or bodily integrity. And the kinds of things that we're talking about when we describe trauma, those are um, the most common forms are physical, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, severe neglect, family and community violence, the sudden or violent death of a loved one, serious accidents or life-threatening illnesses, painful medical procedures, Those are some of the more common examples. When you look at, uh, when you broaden the definition of trauma to include other adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, then we're talking about things like emotional conflict or household dysfunction, or even social determinants like food insecurity or parental divorce separation, parental alcohol or drug use. So there's lots of different types of trauma, um, and they all have, uh, can have a significant impact on children's functioning. Great. Thank you so much. And from your perspective, again, the school responder model is really a framework um, for 
engaging in a behavioral health response to student behaviors. Um, what is your definition of a school responder model? When I think about school responder models, I really think about two key features. The first is it's it's a school level response with an impact, first of all, on reducing unnecessary juvenile justice contact, including arrests and referrals to the juvenile court system. So that's really the first key and critical element. Adding to that, a lot of the school responder models that we have familiarity with also will focus on other forms of what's called exclusionary discipline. And that can mean arrest, but it also includes expulsion and out-of-school suspension. So that's the first uh, layer that we look at. SRMs, or school responder models, reduce unnecessary juvenile justice contact and exclusionary discipline. The second critical component of an SRM, from our perspective, is that it increases access to effective behavioral health responses as an alternative to the exclusionary discipline events we just described. So that could include things like a behavioral health service. In our state of Connecticut, we rely a lot on the mobile crisis response network uh, as an alternative to arrest or expulsion and as a way to stabilize the kinds of behaviors that might lead to arrest or expulsion and an increase in things like restorative practices, which are alternative uh, accountability and support models um, and, and a different tool in the toolbox than arrest, expulsion, suspension. Great. Thank you so much for that. And hopefully our listeners can um, fully get some more depth of what the school responder model is based on that description that you provided from your point of view. So thank you for sharing those very important points. And another piece to add here is really essential if you don't mind bringing these two things together for us. So how is an understanding of trauma relevant to implementing a school responder model from your perspective? So we know from the research that children with behavioral health needs have much higher rates of experiencing arrest and exclusionary discipline. And many times behavioral health conditions and the kinds of diagnoses that you hear about, whether it's anxiety or depression or even things like ADHD, um, when you start to talk with these children and families um, around those kinds of presenting conditions, frequently you find out that there's an underlying trauma or series of traumas that these children have experienced. And so the, the underlying factors behind, and let's take, for example, an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as a diagnosis, that can be very useful, can help you um, identify effective treatments. But one of the things that can happen is that if you don't address the underlying trauma that has occurred that may be contributing to those symptoms, then you might be just putting a Band-Aid on something. And uh, to really get long-lasting effectiveness, um, you really need to address the underlying trauma, physical abuse or sexual abuse or neglect or things of that nature. So um, what we find is that children who have been exposed to trauma really experience and tend to experience a lot of dysregulation in their emotions and in their behaviors. Um, and there's good science now available showing that prolonged exposure to traumatic events can literally create changes in the structure and functioning of your brain. And two of the areas that are affected are the prefrontal cortex, which is related to judgment, decision-making, and um, impulsivity. And another area is the amygdala, which is related to um, emotional regulation and social emotional development. So there's a reason I'm saying all that. If you think about the kinds of behaviors that would place a child at risk of being arrested or expelled, it's really uh, emotional outbursts, behavioral outbursts, 
And frequently what you find is that children who uh, have been exposed to trauma have uh, a significantly reduced ability to regulate their emotions and their behaviors. So um, in response to things that might happen in the classroom, in the hallway, they're going to act out perhaps more uh, aggressively or in a much more pronounced way than other children. And that places them at risk of being arrested or expelled. So I think it's really critical for schools to understand trauma and how it impacts behavior and emotional regulation and learning because it can give people within a school a new frame and a new way of uh, understanding what they're seeing and maybe cause them to make different decisions about how to respond to those behaviors. Great. Thank you so much. And using that example of a, a student acting out in the hallway, um, you know, as what you're talking about is saying that that might be um, an indicator that something is that the student is managing something. There may be a trauma history there, trauma exposure, and there may be a background and some reasoning for that behavior. So with that in mind, how can teachers uh, recognize trauma exposure and symptoms in students. So that's an example you just gave. Teachers may not, or other school staff may not necessarily make the connection to that behavior and trauma. So how are um, school staff advised to recognize this in students? Is there a way? Is it easy to do? Hi, it's Joe Callahan. Um, it, uh, there, is, there are ways. It, it isn't easy at all. Um, one of the major problems is that, you know, people who come to work in schools um, have little to no training in this area at all. So um, when they walk into their first teaching job, um, especially in a place where there's a high level of kids who've been exposed to um, adverse childhood experiences and so on, um, they don't understand it. Um, and, um, and what we see is in the behaviors of the kids um, that are particularly difficult, they feel like out-of-control behaviors to staff members. They are out of control. Um, and schools are organizations that um, necessarily have to control things uh, because there's a lot of people in them, you know, a lot of movement and all of that. So when kids, um, like the example of a kid in the hallway who's dysregulated for some reason, uh, a school's response to that is to do two things. One is to control it so it stops, so people don't feel um, upset or anxious or fearful about whatever's going on. Um, and then to spend a lot of time saying to the kid, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What's happening? And which gets back to the prefrontal cortex part of this, that you know, kids who are um, really in that dysregulated state aren't in a position to sit down and have a nice discussion about why they're behaving the way they're behaving because it has very little to do with their you know, ability to access logical thought. Um, so schools um, are, are constantly in this place of one, attempting to control things, sometimes because that's necessary, and two, trying to understand things in a very sort of cognitive talk therapy kind of way. Um, and what really needs to happen is number one, school staff have to understand what trauma is to begin with. All of that um, that Jeff just laid out is so essential because, uh, as I said, people don't know that. And what often happens is when you begin to teach um, teachers and paraprofessionals and administrators and all those folks um, about trauma and its impact on children, um, light bulbs go off. They go, oh, that's why that's happening. Um, and so that's the, a really great first step. 
um, to sort of understand why it's happening, but then, of course, what to do about it. Um, and so I think for, for schools, such an important part of this is to, to not just know, understand it, but to really be thinking about how are we responding to it. And the good news about that is, of course, the sort of trauma-informed ways of responding are good for everybody. So even people who aren't experienced in trauma will um, benefit from, you know, teachers who are thinking about this more as they're responding or staff members and so on. Thank you so much, Joe. Jeff, do you have anything you'd like to add there? No, I think Joe's right on, especially the point around this being really hard work. Um, and I think um, in schools where you have teachers who are not used to thinking about students and student behavior in this way, the big challenge is changing that frame of reference right. and maintaining it over time because teachers turn over and principals turn over. So I know, Joe, that's a constant yeah. issue that you have to address. Yeah. And Jeff and I were just sort of talking about that before we went live here that, um, you know, we're, we're always taking, it feels like a couple of steps forward in um, raising awareness about traumatic stress and its impact on kids, um, helping teachers to and administrators to think about these things differently, and then taking two or three steps backwards. And mm -hmm. part, of, part of the backwards piece of that is, um, you know, when, when people get anxious, they do what they know. So um, there's all this parallel process that's happening. So traumatized kids who are anxious, upset, do what they know. So which is to, you know, maybe to misbehave, depending on the kid, you know, to run out of the building or whatever they might do. And so staff, when those things happen and it raises their anxiety, they do what they know, which is control it, stop it. Um, yell at the kid, you know, put the kid in timeout, suspend the kid, whatever it might be. Um, and that parallel process plays out all the time. So we have to like try and build in systems, which is really hard in schools because of the nature of the way schools operate, where people can have time to sit down and talk about what's going on. And one of the, one of the problems is we spend so much time talking about the kid, you know, what's wrong with Johnny? you know, the sort of pathologizing of Johnny or in, in, you know, with the juvenile justice piece or the criminalizing of Johnny, instead of spending time talking about what's happening with this kid and our own reactions to it and behavior around it. Um, and that's problematic because if we don't at some point say, well, how are you responding to this child? Did, did you, you know, um, aggravate the situation by your response and so on? Um, which happens all the time. If we're not able to discuss that, people aren't going to grow and change. Yeah, thank you both so much for that. Thank you. So in understanding trauma, how can this depth of understanding what trauma is and how it can impact the students in a school, how can this shift the context of a school responder model or have an impact on implementing a school responder model, in your opinion? There's there's a lot of ways that this can happen. Um, I think it starts for us in, in our work in Connecticut, where we've implemented a school responder model that we refer to here locally as a school based diversion initiative. A big part of the work that we do is around training and support, uh, ongoing learning for teachers, for social workers, for school resource officers, for administrators. So the people who are responding in the moment to a challenging behavior and the folks who have to make a decision about what to do about it after that incident has cooled down um, in terms of a, 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 some kind of disciplinary response or some other supportive response. 
So a big part of the work for us is presenting information to teachers in a way that's relatable to them. I probably wouldn't talk about a prefrontal cortex and an amygdala with a <laughs> set of teachers for very long. But it is helpful, I think, for them to understand that trauma does have a real impact on the brain, on behavior and on learning and starting to change their frame of reference around how they explain what they're seeing. And that's uh, what Joe was talking about earlier relates to how folks explain what's happening. And he made reference to what is pretty a pretty common uh, phrasing in the trauma world around the difference between what is wrong with this student and what happened to this student. And asking those questions, uh, those two questions, the first, what, what's wrong with this student, uh, I think lends itself pretty well to a punitive approach of responding to difficult behaviors. Whereas the question of what's happened to the student is going to lead you to ask different questions and to make different causal attributions about what you're seeing. Uh, go ahead. I just think the other, the other piece of that from a trauma perspective is to ask what's happening to this student. Because even if they're no longer in danger, no one's hurting them, um, they're experiencing, you know, the sort of post-traumatic stress is something that goes on even when you're no longer uh, in, in any kind of danger. So kids are, you know, often ex re-experiencing their traumatic stress over and over again. Um, and, um, and so that's what's happening to them piece is an important part of it as well. I would add in the context of the school responder model, once you have that shift in thinking and you've really set that foundation about thinking that way in terms of what's happened to the child or the student, then really putting that into policy and practice to really sustain that in a way that's operational for a school. So the school responder model as something that's actually on paper, so an actual flow chart that shows what the decision-making process is for them to walk through once you've identified a need. How do you then treat that? Who Who's involved? Who's helping to make those decisions? Who should be informed? How is information being shared? And what are the options for handling that situation? It's really important in the school responder model. Thank you so much for adding that, Gina. Um, we're going to shift and talk a little bit more about the school responder model. We mentioned it briefly a little bit earlier, and Jeff explained some key pieces of the school responder model. I want to dive in a little bit deeper and ask you all to describe the formal steps in a school responder model process um, and connect in this conversation on trauma and how trauma impacts each of these steps. Yeah, I'll start. And um, the first step in a school responder model is forming the cross-system collaborative team. And when you have an understanding about trauma and its impact on students, it, I think, leads you to make different decisions about who you include at the table for supporting the implementation of a school responder model. Uh, I think you have to think about teachers and administrators and school resource officers and other school personnel as being part of that process. But another thing to think about is if one of the more common trauma exposures that students may experience is something like community violence, then one of the things that schools might want to consider is how they can get community members who really have a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the neighborhood to be part of your team, because they may be able to explain to you that there's really been a, uh, a lot of tension in our community over the last few weeks related to various events that are occurring. And that can be tremendously helpful for a school for putting into context what they're seeing. Maybe they don't know that the student who's been acting up in the math class for the last couple of days just lost a cousin to gun violence two weeks ago. 
Um, they may know that, but they may not know that. So I think one of the first steps is who's part of your team, who's coming in from the community to be part of your process um, and being inclusive of community members and people who really have an expert level understanding of trauma can be really important pieces of that approach. I think from there, then involving the family as well is a next step that you really go in from there. So you want to... Um, and, you know, in addition to the community, you're really involving the family, you're involving the student themselves, thinking about how what their role is in that and, and using their strengths and their knowledge about their own situation to really help inform what's going to work well for this particular situation. Um, and I think once you, you you can you do that on a larger scale in terms of, um, you know, in, in our example, often involving family advocacy organization or family advocates and support um, people who have experience in you know, sitting in PPT meetings you know, or sitting in um, those types of meetings to support families in that process. They can provide support and mediation and in, in those kinds of conferencing as well. Um, but also then again, on the individual level. So you're looking specifically at each in, in individual circumstance. I think also when you, when you have um, community members and families as uh, connected in that way, it really helps to um, mitigate some of the, you know, hostility that often um, exists between schools and families, particularly in families where, you know, there's challenges. So, you know, usually in those situations, those families, their interactions with school folks is, you know, somebody calling up saying your kid did something, as opposed to, you know, having people be really members of a team where they've got some stake in the in the outcome um, and also some uh, ability to uh, not just have it be given to them, but but have a say in what happens. One thing I'd add to that, it's, it's really interesting in some of the schools that we've worked with um, in Connecticut, but also in other states across the country, there often is a real interest in having family members and even young people, students themselves, as part of a, a disciplinary team or a council to help make decisions. And what's really interesting about that is uh, you really see a full range of people's perspectives come mm -hmm. out and mm -hmm. having them part of that conversation is really important. But it's also frequently surprising to school uh, personnel We've heard a lot of examples where they talk about getting students involved on a, a disciplinary council of some kind, and the suggested disciplinary actions that the students come up with are significantly more <laughs> harsh than what um, they as administrators might suggest. And so it's a really important way to get people on the same page about what uh, an appropriate response to behavior is all about and what works best in getting people on the same page. Mm -hmm. You also get the other side of the coin. You get people who think that the, that the school is much too harsh already and that um, people need to lighten up. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's really important to get a broad, diverse set of perspectives together and, um, and really support this work. I think, Jeff, you're, you're kind of alluding to the inherent tension between it's sort of that punitive approach versus that accountability approach. So I think, you know, often in this, in this case, people want to, the main goal is always to reduce the negative behaviors, right. And, and decrease the problematic behaviors that are, that are happening. But how do you do that in a supportive way and in a way that also holds, you know, students accountable when there has been a challenging behavior that has had an impact on others. Um, 
and that's where, you know, often the restorative practices approach comes in. And I know we'll talk more about that, but thinking again about sort of how to balance that um, need to respond to a situation or an incident, but also um, be accountable, but also supportive. And so sometimes you do see a difference in that approach versus, you know, from a student perspective or a family perspective and administrative perspective. Well, I think the other thing is this can also help schools to be more creative about, you know, what they're, how they're responding mm-hmm. to things. Because, um, you know, I think one of the things people need to think about is, well, what is our goal here? So if our goal is to punish the child, mm-hmm. then okay, throw them out. You know, that's a punishment. But not for every kid, uh, it turns mm-hmm. out. Not every kid feels punished by not having to show up at school. Um, but But if the goal is which I think it probably is ultimately to change behavior, then we have mm-hmm. to think is excluding in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in all the ways you can exclude someone going to change behavior. And it's pretty clear that that's not, um, you know, if a kid does something one time wrong um, and gets suspended and is tortured by being suspended, that'll probably change his or her behavior. But if it's a kid with chronic um, behavior problems and um, all kinds of psychosocial stressors and so on, we know it's not. So thinking about some other way to respond is, is important. And I think the, the other part is that um, one of the things we know about traumatized folks is that often disrupts their ability to make good attachments. And teaching and learning, schooling, is all about relationships. Nobody ever says that teacher was so great at teaching me math. They say that teacher was so great at caring about me and I learned all the math. So it's when we have good, solid relationships with people that the really positive outcomes happen in school. So saying get out, get out, get out is going to have the opposite effect, especially for people who have difficulty attaching. Thank you so much. Is there anything... um else that either of you would like to add about the formal steps in the SRM process and trauma? Yeah, there's a, as, as we know, uh, Crystal, there's uh, several steps in the school responder that the, everything we just talked about relates mm-hmm. to the first couple of steps. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's really important because it sets the context for the work. But another thing to think about is how do you determine a population of focus for a school responder model? And there's a couple of ways of thinking about that. I would say on one hand that a school responder model is is a universal approach in that when you're changing the way that you relate to student misbehavior and the kinds of responses you're making, it really applies to every student in the school. When you make changes to your culture and climate, that impacts and, and affects every child and student in the school. So to a large degree, implementing a school responder model is a universal approach and it, and it helps everyone. But I think it's also important to note that the children who are the students who are most likely to show up in the office for misbehavior or to come into contact with the school resource officer for something that's happened in the hallway or the cafeteria, those are more likely to be uh, students who have had a trauma exposure in their background, children with behavioral health conditions. Uh, children with other kinds of disabilities, such as a learning disability or things of that nature, and also, importantly, black and brown students. And the research is very, very clear on all of those populations having much higher prevalence of exclusionary discipline. So an understanding of trauma is critically important to making sure that you are 
selecting the right kinds of interventions for the kinds the population of students who are most likely to be at risk for exclusionary discipline. And I would add the the flip side of that too, thinking about um, determining your population is also thinking about determining which of your staff you're going to engage in this work as well. So when you're rolling out a school responder model, um, it really is a whole school approach. And so you do engage all of your staff in this work, but there are oftentimes where you can identify certain staff who tend to have higher levels of discipline referrals come from their classrooms or have more difficulty establishing relationships with certain groups of students. You may have certain teachers or staff who have been there, the more veteran staff who sometimes we, we hear that they might be resistant to change or think, oh, this is just a new fad. This is just, you know, this year's project that we're supposed to implement. It's not going to stick around. So I'm just going to wait it out. So thinking about um, which staff and faculty and, and supporters that you need to engage in this as well is also really important. Another important step in the SRM process is structuring an initial response when something does happen. Um, oftentimes the decision about accountability for behavior might be minutes or, or even hours or perhaps even days after the incident occurred. But I think it's really important to think about what you do right now in the moment. One of the things that we do in our school-based diversion model here in Connecticut is that we offer training on classroom behavior management skills. Because oftentimes that the teacher in the classroom is going to be the first person who has to respond to a situation that occurs. Um, I was writing, I was thinking here about Bruce Perry's work in trauma, and he talks about a model of regulate, relate, and reason, and um, what he refers to as the three R's. And that's, I think, a lot of what we do in the classroom behavior management training module is talking about starting with regulating the emotion and then making relying on that relationship, um, tapping into the relational element of working with that student. And you really can't do the third R of reasoning until you've done those first two. Um, A lot of times, and Joe was talking about this earlier, I think adults have a tendency to jump in there and want to immediately reason. And with a traumatized student or a student who's emotionally dysregulated, they are not ready to reason. They need to regulate first. They need somebody to relate to them and then they can reason. So having an initial response is really important. Sometimes it needs to be somebody other than that particular classroom teacher. So what's helpful in our work in Connecticut is we will work with schools to identify a group of people who really understand this work well, who can respond in the moment to a behavioral incident. That might be, it might be your school resource officer. It could be a really great social worker who's in your building. Maybe it is an assistant principal. But I think identifying those people who can really effectively manage things in the moment is critical. Um, if you have the resource available in your state or in your community, bringing in a community-based behavioral health provider might also be an option. I know here in Connecticut, we've got a mobile crisis team that's available to every city and town in the state. And a lot of the schools that we work with on the SBDI project will tap into the mobile crisis team in their community and have them come in and support them and uh, stabilize a, a really hot situation. So that's a, a really another critically important step is how do you respond right now in the moment? And then um, once you've stabilized the situation, then kind of move into what do we do now? Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll just um, add a, a note here that we're talking about the formal steps in the school responder model and 
just wanted to point out that this school responder model is indeed a framework and there aren't inherently steps to follow in order. What we just heard um, Jeff, Gina and Joe talk about can be done concurrently or in any order. It's not beginning with step one and ending with step five, say, and then you've done it. These things are iterative. They happen as the work goes. And it really just sets a framework for how to do this work to transform school culture and climate and create safer environments for students and for school, school staff. So thank you so much for sharing all of that on some of these pieces of the school responder model. In the description of this podcast, you'll be able to see a link where you could go to for more information on school responder model and the different elements involved in creating one. And you'll also see a link to CHDI's website. So you can see some of the great um, work that they've done and what they've uh, alluded to in this podcast. So moving on, I just wanted to ask another question here about uh, what you all do in Connecticut specifically. And like I said, we'll share the link to your website so people can go on and learn some more, but it would be great to hear from you all, um, Jeff and Gina, about what you're doing at CHDI and the trauma-informed perspective that you've infused into your school-based diversion initiative or SBDI, um, the school responder model that you all have. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to share some information about SBDI. So we've been doing that work here in Connecticut over 10 years now, implementing the school-based diversion initiative and um, really have over time kind of evolved our trauma-informed approach in the way that we um, that we approach this work in terms of diverting youth from the juvenile justice system and really supporting the behavioral health needs that are identified. Um, one of the things that Jeff started with in describing the steps of the school responder model is around that collaborative team. And that is really kind of the foundation of where this work starts in the school building is identifying who your champions are, um, who your decision makers are, and who are really going to be kind of your boots on the ground to get this work implemented in a school. Um, we definitely want that to be um, kind of a, a cross-collaborative team that really engages lots of different roles in the school. So we identify um, one lead champion in Connecticut. We refer to them as a leader in residence who actually is kind of responsible for not only kind of generating buy-in and kind of guiding the support and uptake of this work in their school, but also kind of doing some of the logistical pieces of scheduling things and just keeping on, keeping things on track as our liaison um, to us here at CHDI. Um, but in addition to that person, and, and often that person might be um, a social worker, it might be uh, some, a school psychologist, it might be um, a special education teacher, sometimes it's an administrator, but again, it's somebody who has um, it has some familiarity with the referral process in the school and also has some level of decision-making ability so that they can um, kind of put these principles into action in their school. Um, and the team that then helps them with that, I mentioned social workers, psychologists, those are critical elements of their team, as well as school resource officer, really having them engaged and, and involved. And so everybody's on the same page with what, where the goals are going for this particular initiative and making sure that we're on the same page. Um, you know, we started this work early on. The goal was we started kind of very clearly thinking about diverting arrest and very quickly, 
you know, realize, well, we can't just talk about diverting arrest because often then that just pushes it off into suspension and expulsion. And so thinking about how to look at this, you know, holistically as we've been talking throughout this podcast so far in terms of exclusionary discipline. And so thinking about who's engaged in that work, um, who are making those decisions about referrals, and who are the support people that have access to the resources and know what um, what's available to help support students that when those needs are identified. So again, that's kind of one of the, the ways that we really start this work in the School-Based Diversion Initiative. And identifying that as an ongoing work group that then processes how are these changes happening over time? So what kinds of things are working well? You know, looking at data on a monthly basis, that's a really critical component of this as well. So it's not just, you know, kind of anecdotally, oh, I think things are going okay, or this is going awful, it's not working at all. Really kind of taking a data-informed approach so that they're really being concrete about what steps are they taking and what changes do they expect to see and how are those outcomes happening on a you know, on a month to month basis as they're rolling this out over a school year. I think um, to add to that in terms of other team members or other key components, um, particularly for us here in Connecticut, it's really about the behavioral health response. And so thinking about what are those primary services and supports that are available to schools, either in-house that they have their own capacity in the school, or what are those referral sources in the community that they can be linked to, to really provide additional supports and services. And so for us in Connecticut, Jeff had mentioned our mobile crisis program, that's a key component where we do um, rely on them pretty heavily at times to come into the school, de-escalate a situation, or just help to kind of process better what some warning signs that might be happening. So it might not be a full-blown crisis when we call them in, but it might be, you know, staff are concerned, they're seeing warning signs, or maybe a low-level incident has happened and they want to prevent additional challenges from occurring. That's a great way to get, you know, another set of eyes on the kid, get them linked in to a system of screening and support and assessment and referral to additional services that might be needed. So that's a key component of it as well. And really thinking about who are those other behavioral health providers that can lend support from that connection point. Thanks so much for that, Gina. And shifting to the actual, the school perspective itself, Joe, a question specifically for you. Um, how does a trauma-informed school responder model approach align with different efforts that schools may be implementing as part of multi-tiered systems of support? So one of the things we do here at NCYOJ is emphasize that the school responder model or a school responder model can be integrated into existing efforts, um, MTSS, PBIS, that there's no need to have staff feel burdened or have a sense of initiative fatigue implementing a school responder model as a separate thing that the school has to do, but instead it folds very nicely into other efforts that are already existing in schools. So Joe, can you share from your perspective how this aligns um, with MTSS and how this works with multi-tiered systems of support? Sure. So um you know, as we are developing our multi-tiered system, um, you know, obviously there's there's lots of different kinds of supports kids need in school. So we're developing systems around reading and math and all of that. And then in addition, the behavior piece has been critically important for us. Um, how is it that we um, can respond to kids um, you know, in all those different levels. So, you know, in the tier system, in tier one, tier two, and tier three. Um, and so this school responder model and things like it are, are easily um, 
and uh, connected to that when we've done the work of trying to put in the tiers a tier system that's helpful. So, for example, tier one, all of our schools are thinking about universal precautions and uh, universal um, uh, responses to how kids are supposed to be in the school and so on and so forth. Um, and then tier two and tier three, uh, developing more intensive systems. And of course, the responder model is going to be um, linked in more closely with those kids in the tier two and tier three supports. Um, and so I think, as you said, it easily uh, dovetails with what we're trying to do, because if a tier two support is that you're um, getting some counseling support uh, from a social worker or something like that, how can we be in a place of preventing um, all the all of the issues that might come up where a kid ends up somebody wanting to suspend him, expel him, arrest him. Um, what what can that look like? Which also then goes back to the tier one issues because one of the things we know with traumatized kids is you know what does it mean to walk down a hallway with 500, 700, a thousand other kids, right? If you're a person who's dysregulated anyway um, and you're hyper vigilant, so if we know that. How can we put in those tier one supports for everybody that we make a system where the hallway is feels safe? Um, you know, I've been in plenty of schools in my life where the hallway didn't feel particularly safe, <laughs> not because something specific was happening, but just because it felt kind of out of control. So if, if I'm working with the kid and know that this is what he needs um, in my tier two or tier three support, um, and I can then have that also affect the tier one by thinking with the powers that be about what is it we're going to do to make hallway a better place to be, as an example. Um, that, that can really be a real kind of helpful thing for the whole school. And I think when you have a school responder model like this, those kinds of things are going to come up because if the school responder model is put in place, someone's going to say, what was the hallway like? before this all kind of happened. Um, and how can we prevent that? So instead of saying, you know, it's just about the kid and what the kid did, uh, we can think about the larger institution and, and what's what's happened in the whole place um, and how to respond to that differently. I'm not sure I completely answered your question, but there you go. <laughs> I, I would add one component of that, uh, of the school responder model that really aligns with that approach, with the multi-tiered approach is the restorative practices component. Yeah. So we've talked about that a little bit, but um, really thinking I mean, that's really on a continuum as well. And the goal there is to restore relationships and create positive relationships. So when there is a challenging situation that you're, you have a foundation that you've already built of a strong relationships and you can go back to that and say, where, you know, what went wrong and how can we fix it? How can we restore it as right as possible? And so starting from very basic things like um, affective statements and affective questions that, again, are things that are appropriate for all students and staff as well. So we're not just talking about students, but for the whole environment, um, all the way up to those more formal practices like circles and mediation mm -hmm. and conferencing that um, bring in that problem-solving approach, but in a way that really aligns to the trauma-informed approach and also across the, the multi-tiered systems of support. And I, I think that raises a really important component that, that's, um, that I've been really um, advocating for a couple of years now is that, that we can't have a system 
in schools, particularly a trauma-informed system or a diversionary system or anything like that, that's just about the kids. It has to be about the adults as well. So if you're going to implement a restorative circle example, as an example, where a teacher is going to have to come and be involved in that, that's going to require a teacher to be vulnerable in some way or another. Um, and so we have to spend a lot of time working with our staff to get them to a place where they're able to do that. Because as I was saying earlier, when, when people get out of their um, teaching preparation programs, their, their knowledge about behavior management is pretty little, pretty small. Um, and typically what they do is whatever their mother did um, or their father. So if, you know, mom's a yeller or whatever, I'm a yeller, that kind of thing. Um, but I think what we're asking them to do um, in these models that we're discussing is to be different with the kid. Um, and so rather than be just in control and just the authority and just the boss or whatever, we're asking staff to be willing to sit down and be in relationship which is a harder thing to do, especially with someone who drives you crazy. Um, and if, if you've got a kid in your class or multiple kids in your class that really challenge you, it's a hard thing to sit with them and be in relationship with them because really what you desire, even if you're not able to say it, is for them to get away from you. Um, so it's, it's pretty understandable why people want to push kids out um, because – it, because one of the one of the problems I think teachers experience is they feel really incompetent because I can't teach because I've got this kid who runs around the room or curses me out or whatever the kid does. So teachers fail like, feel like failures, whether they're um, able to really articulate that. I think that's true of what goes on for teachers. And so when you feel like a failure you don't respond always your best way. So this, this whole um, way of being is really requires a kind of different um, way of being vulnerable, honest, um, and relational with kids. And if we, so we have to change some of the way we respond to the adults so that we can give people permission um, to say with, with other adults, this is really hard for me and have that not be an evaluative measure of how they do as a teacher. But it's hard for me to have this kid in my room because once they can do that, then we can talk about it and have some honest discussion about, okay, it's hard. what's hard? How do we do it? What, how can we be different about it? Um, and people then feel support. So. That was a really great way of explaining one of the core principles of the restorative practice model is around the social discipline window, right? So you, the goal is to do things with the, the students and the staff to do things with, you know, and together, not not overly punitive where you're doing things to them and not overly permissive where you're doing things for them, but really kind of that sweet spot of balancing that that so you're actually actually doing it together. And that does take a lot of vulnerability and it also takes a lot of support and acknowledgement on the administration's behalf to build that in. And, you know, we talk about policy and we talk about, you know, standardizing this into uh, structuring this into policy that really making sure that there's structures and supports there to support staff as well. And that reminder that the, that a trauma-informed approach really is about everyone. It's not about those, you know, few students who have been identified as having the most serious needs. It's really about everybody. One last thing I would add about um, the relationship between an SRM and how it fits into a multi-tiered system of supports. If you're doing a school responder model the right way and following all the steps, one of the things that you introduce into this process is an ability to screen so and refer to treatment or even provide treatment within the school. 
And uh, as you have these deeper conversations and relationships with students in your school, and you're not just looking to remove a student from a situation as a way to just calm things down, but you're, you're going to find that you're uncovering different needs than you may have expected. And ha- making sure that schools have the tools that they need to really um, uncover what those needs are, and then knowing what to do with it once they've uncovered those needs is really important. So that's why having a standardized screening measure as part of this SRM model there's a direct relationship between that and what you what you would need to have a full MTSS in your school as well. So that's a really clear connecting point. Um, there's good trauma measures out there. The child trauma screen is one of them. It's available on our CHGI website for free. It can be downloaded and used by schools. And then having effective trauma-informed interventions available. Sometimes those are things that are being delivered in the school. I know in, in Joe's schools, there's a number of clinicians now who have been trained in what's called CBITS, Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Trauma in Schools, and its elementary school version, which is called Bounce Back. So that is a great resource because as you have these deeper conversations or relationships, you find out that there's trauma exposure and, and symptoms going on you can make a referral right to your CBITS or your bounce back team in your school. Sometimes the need is more significant than that. And having a relationship with a community-based behavioral health partner is critical so that you can make a referral to an outside agency who can take on a level of support with students that um, exceeds what's available within your own school building. So that's another way that SRM fits in with the multi-tiered system of supports. Thank you. So I'm so delighted that you added the piece on on screening. That's so important. The screening and the referral is really essential to a successful uh, school responder model and really something that helps students get the services and supports that they need in the community and ties back to the earlier conversation on um, identifying what's available in the community and having that cross collaborative team that can include those community supports. So thank you so much for adding that piece. Another question, just to close out today's conversation, and I can't thank the three of you enough for your time, um, really to drill down into how this actually works and what it actually looks like in a school, um, just to highlight that this isn't all theoretical, that it actually does happen, and really emphasize how this can be successful. Um, I'll ask Joe if you could please share a success story that you might be aware of from Stanford Public Schools and any outcomes that you're really proud of that you saw happen in that school. Sure. Um, it's, Jeff and I were sort of talking about this um, before we, we started about, um, you know, how successful we feel, you know, and, and my, part of my problem is I'm, I'm looking at this from a system perspective. So sometimes it's hard to, to um, think things are changing and developing. But with that said, they are. Um, and so I, just a, a student example, um, I know a young man who um, we have in one of our high schools who's been very difficult for several years, um, lots of uh, behavior problems, which primarily have been around not going to class and fighting. Um, And so he was being suspended um, all the time uh, for that kind of stuff. Um, And which is ironic because, you know, not going to class is, you know, He's, he's self-suspending, you know, he, he, he cut the middleman out. Um, so anyway, so, um, but with a lot of work with the school administration and, and some of the other folks in the school, really helping people think about what else can we do here to provide some support? Back to the question, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? Are we trying to get him to go to class? Well, you know, sending him home with an official stamp isn't going to do it. 
Um, and so, number one, we evaluated him and screened him and um, found out all kinds of things about his, his life that the school didn't know. Um, and then were able to um, provide supports to him. So both in school um, and out of school. Well, at the out of school part of the mental health support that he got was in the school-based health center, which of course is in the school, even though not operated by the school. So he, he was able to, he was in a CBITS group. He got um, therapy in the school-based health center. He also saw the psychiatrist. Um, but then also we have relationships, back to the relationships with community providers. Uh, one of the community providers we have is the Domus Foundation. Um, and they have a program called Family Advocates. So the kid was um, given a family advocate, which was then able, that person was then able to really work with mom and the family um, and community partners to wrap this kid up and, and give him lots and lots of support. So the upshot of that is he began to go to class um, more often. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he immediately went to all his classes, but he, he began to feel, I think, um, and like he was part of it as opposed to just the problem. Um, and I think that was really, really helpful to him. Thank you so much for sharing that. And as we wrap up today's discussion, is there anything else the three of you would like to share about um, the impact of trauma on youth and the school responder model? I guess I would say um, that I would encourage any school who's listening to this podcast to really take a shot at doing this work because it's important and we know that it works. Um, we have been going back 10 plus years now, as Gina mentioned, we've been working with policy research associates for a long time, uh, starting from the beginning of our development of the school-based diversion initiative. And we've been in over 50 schools now, and we've seen really great results. We've seen on average around a 35 to 40% reduction in juvenile court referrals for schools that have done our SBDI work and somewhere in the neighborhood of a 50 to 60% increase in referrals to behavioral health services and supports. And that's impacted a lot of students. So um, I would encourage people who are listening to this to do the work. It, it can be difficult, it can be challenging, but we found that the schools that stick with it for a while find it to be really helpful and it's it's really helped improve um, things in the classroom and in the school and helped improve students' lives. And I would say the other thing from uh, to piggyback on what Jeff was saying about doing the work, especially for school people, one of the challenges is um, there are, you know, obviously so many distractions. So, you know, we've got to do math. We, we don't have time for this or that kind of thing. Um, but we all know that if we can't get um, kids in seats in classrooms ready to learn, who cares what how good a math teacher I am? So, um, so that's a really important part to be thinking about um, how do we develop um, our skill set so that we can have kids feel connected. And so, and I think there needs to be people um, in positions where this is their responsibility um, so that it continues. Because as Gina was talking about before, the wait out approach is very classic thing schools do. You know, oh, this is the new thing. It'll go away. Um, and it will go away if there's nobody in charge of it. Um, so that's just a really important piece. Mm -hmm. 
The only thing I would add is just, you know, not to be discouraged by some of those big numbers. So, you know, success isn't only, you know, these big decreases in in court referrals and big increases in referrals to behavioral health services. I mean, those clearly are ultimate goals that you really want to strive for. But start small and think about some of the really small changes that you can make on a daily basis that are going to be really significant. And that's in the relationships. That's improving the relationships. That's in de-escalating one situation at a time. It's what you prevented and what you diverted, which sometimes are hard to count, right? So it's not that you can actually quantify that sometimes, but it's creating that um, more positive environment that is going to eventually lead you to those bigger picture outcomes that you will see over time. Thank you so much. Again, um, this is a podcast from the National Center for Youth Opportunity and Justice, and we are pleased to have had this conversation with these three experts in trauma and working with students with behavioral health needs. And we'd like to thank you for listening to this conversation. It's one of several that we're posting to help the schools that we're working with succeed in their own school responder models. And so Jeff, Gina, Joe, can't thank you enough for your time. It was a wonderful conversation and thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. Please subscribe to our SoundCloud for more episodes of this series and visit our website at srm.policyresearchinc.org for more information. To learn more about the work of the Child Health and Development Institute, please visit them online at www.chdi.org. Thank you.